1: Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. And for the rest of this podcast, I'll be speaking in rhyme, courtesy of our own poetic maestro, David Ariosto. Oh, so the rhyming has started already, it seems. David is our editorial director, and he wrote this look-back podcast that the year just ended, some of it troubling and some of it splendid. There was Russia's invasion and Ukraine's stunning stand... The Afghan exit after 20 years' quicksand. We had economic turmoil, flame wars by tweet. We debated inflation and how to beat the street. We argued food and SATs, and are the classics overrated? The culture of cancel, is that overstated? Does England need a king? Are space aliens a thing? What good do unions bring? Does life in the city sing for you or me? We took on the dollar. Would a digital buck be good? And electric vehicles, just what's under that hood? Of public radio, we asked, does it matter like it used to? Of gene editing, we asked, do you want to get used to it? Yes, Trump came up in the potential for indictment. We explored true love, asking where lies fulfillment? Of course, COVID and Roe and midterms and AI. And one debate asked if the Fed could get it right. Globalization, did it turn into an economic fumble? And our American democracy... Is it in trouble? Many questions, many viewpoints, many ways to disagree, but that's what we do here, disagree. Nicely. Mostly. I hope, E. So for this year-end special, take this as a slice of episodes we gave you both naughty and nice. We'll start with an event in Virginia that was real brick and mortar. Its focus, it turns out, information disorder. Should tech companies moderate misinformation that their users post? Michael, you are a yes. Tell us why.
2: So first of all, again, the important thing is the question doesn't say they should be required. It simply says they should be allowed to. And that is really the function of anybody who edits any kind of publication. They have the right, protected by the First Amendment, to decide what gets published and what doesn't get published, and to curate accordingly. We don't make them do it, but we don't prevent them from doing it. In this case, responsible social media platforms should evaluate whether something really is misinformation or disinformation. They've got to use their editorial judgment, just like every editor of every news organization, does and if they believe it's false and misleading and even harmful particularly then they should take it down because that is part of their responsibility to their users and their customers finally it's important to have terms of service that lay out the parameters of what is permitted and what's not permitted so that people who actually use the site are warned in advance that if they step into a zone that is inappropriate, they will be taken down.
1: Thank you, Michael Chertoff. Uh, Nina Jenkins, you are next. You are also a yes on the question.
3: I am. Uh, You know, disinformation and misinformation have affected the functioning of our democracy. They've affected public health. And they are affecting public safety. Just uh, a couple of weeks ago in Michigan, a man who was radicalized by the QAnon conspiracy theory killed his wife, the family dog, and injured his daughter this has very real world consequences and I think we like to think of the things that happen online as uh, staying online, but in reality, disinformation is causing offline consequences. And as Secretary Chertoff said, tech companies are private entities. They all moderate to some degree. They all have terms of service that we sign up to when we log on to share pictures of our kids or our dogs and cats. You know, We sign up to be moderated by them. Even Truth Social moderates, despite uh, despite saying otherwise, they've been found to actually be taking down some posts that are critical of President Trump. So I think we should all note that. Um, and I think also important is that you know equal and transparent enforcement of those rules, which the tech companies to this point have not done, would really reduce the uproar about moderation on those platforms. So I'd like to see all of that. And you know my final point is that content moderation about dis and misinformation doesn't have to equal removal of speech. We can put friction on disinformative posts, reducing their amplification. Uh, freedom of speech does not necessarily mean freedom of reach, right? Uh, so we're not talking about removing speech. Again, um, there are a lot of other elements to content moderation that we can be talking about, and it is incumbent on the social media platforms to be uh, to be moderating the speech that users are posting.
1: Thank you, Nina. Now, um, Charles, you were going to be next, but given the lineup here, <laughs> in the interest of challenging monotony, I'm going to have Stuart, jump in and then come to you. Are you good sure. with that? Okay: Sound sounds good. So Stuart, you are a no on this question.
4: I'm,
5: I'm a no. Obviously, there is, is and must be some forms of content moderation. That I, I, and everybody does it, including Truth Social. But the content moderation system we have now is, basically, there are four companies that tell us what we can say to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers. They decide, and they say, as as, uh, Mike Chertoff said, not only is it something we choose to do, but it's our First Amendment right to tell you what you cannot say. What the hell is that? This is the First Amendment to censor? That's that's the right we're talking about? Uh, And the idea that these four companies, right, Twitter, YouTube, Google... Uh, uh, Facebook, and huh, TikTok, whose parent company's CEO apologized to the Chinese Communist Party for not doing a good enough job of censoring the views of people who disagreed with the Chinese Communist Party. Go- those are the four companies that'll tell us what we can say. No.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Stuart.
4: All right, Charles, it turns to you. You are a Yes. Uh, tech companies have a, a responsibility to not only their users, but to, to the nation to promulgate information uh, that is healthy, that, that, that is truthful. And without doing so, severely, severely impacts not only our national security, uh, but the health and, and safety of, of U.S. citizens. So, for example, we saw with the COVID-19 uh pandemic things went rampant with misinformation on various uh, social media sites um certain ones did a, a better job than others in um, taking down that misinformation and probably saved probably saved a lot of lives uh, others who have a more um, you know political agenda think like 4chan um those um that content stayed up um also i would like to say that there's an economic incentive for the social media companies to, you know, do really well content moderation. What I mean by that is this. If you have greater users that trust your platform, that think the information that you're promulgating is true, then more than likely, they're gonna have greater ad buys, right? So it's within their own self-interest to self-moderate and to self-moderate well.
1: Thank you, Charles. So let's let's chat about this. Michael, I want to take it back to you since you are our first speaker and um, bring to you the main contrary point that came from the sole uh, no vote on this uh, conversation that it's, it's a no with an asterisk but the, the no is based on the fact that the content companies would be given enormous power that they would be acting as a, as a government in their own without checks on what they're doing. So can you respond to that?
2: Sure. So first of all, let me say this. Um, there are issues about antitrust and whether we have too much of a monopoly by certain companies which have much broader implications than just moderation. It has to do with you know, commercial advertising, the power over companies that use the media to reach people, and that's a discussion for another debate. But the reality is it's like a popular newspaper or a popular channel, let's say Fox News, I use that as an example, um, they don't have an obligation to air whatever somebody says, I want to have my voice heard. They may choose to do that to balance, but they may choose not to do it. And the First Amendment does protect the right of a speaker to curate what his platform is used to speak on. Some of you will remember there used to be cases involving license plates. I think there was one, Live Free or Die, And some people said, I don't agree with that. I want to put a piece of tape over the slogan. And the courts upheld that under the First Amendment. You can't be required to propagate a position you disagree with or you know to be false. Now, Obviously, the speaker has a right to start his own platform or to go to another platform. And as Charles pointed out, there are a number of different platforms out there, some of which are very sketchy. But if you want to put yourself out there, it'll reach an audience. But the key here is for the companies to be able to exercise their right to control what their platforms are being used to. And if we're concerned about too much market power, we want to deal with that as a distinct issue.
1: Next up on our list, an event we attended down in New Orleans that was intended to bring together radio directors from around the nation, representing people and stations of most every population. There we debated a topic that's prevalent. The question before them, is public radio still relevant? You both have made a little bit of a reference to the word still. And was there some time when there was a relevance that's not there now. Um, You're arguing that that it's still relevant, but I'm wondering if you see any modulation in its relevance or what you feel about that word still. Was there a golden era when this question would not even have been asked, do you think?
6: Um, No. Uh, I have long argued since I was... 20-year-old snot-nosed kid who was yelling at the general manager about what I thought public radio should be, that public radio has never been relevant enough. It's relevant to a lot of people, but it's never been relevant enough. If 11% of the US population, 15 if you include digital, interact with, 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 with public radio content, what about the other 85%?
1: You're slipping over to that side?
6: No, I'm not. No, I'm not. There are no other institutions other than public radio who are up to addressing that challenge. When you look at the idea of in the war against misinformation, and it's a war, right? If you look at the importance of facts and storytelling based around facts, when you look at the belief, and it's an idealistic belief, that if you give someone facts... The the true patriots in this country are the people who can see facts and draw truth from that fact instead of challenging those facts. And then they will feel empowered to make change in the world. That's really the mission. Let's give people power, right? And let's let them make the decisions what is best for their country. And I think that the... I believe that public radio has shown that. And there's no other player that does that and makes it free accessible to everyone in the country, nobody. And I think that's the place where I come to of public radio is built for this mission. It has a lot of challenges and a lot of work to do to start working on another
1: 85%. But you're basically saying there's nobody there out there to do it better.
6: There's no, if somebody started from scratch, it would take them years to catch up with where public radio's infrastructure is now and ability to answer some of these questions. I work in the podcast industry. And I spend a sizable portion of every day watching podcasters struggle with problems that public radio figured out years ago.
1: Camila, again to the question of stilled, what you are arguing, it's. Less relevant that at some point Certainly. in the time. What yes. was that point in time and what was relevance well, at that I'll point say in time?
0: That in terms of our, our sort of public polling about the question of the sort of credibility of our institutions, be it the Congress or the Supreme Court, military, policing generally, um, that the downward trend in terms of the credibility of media, which sort of more, more so talking about sort of national media, um, has been pretty continuous and precipitous. Um, so It's hard to say when the zenith was, but I would certainly suspect that in the transition from sort of newspaper to radio, a radio-centric kind of um, broadcast-oriented news uh, and information ecosystem, um, the reality is that I think there are a lot of institutions that are kind of competing for that mantle, are able to give people different kinds of information to, to serve the needs for... Uh, information in the context of audiences who are looking to figure out what's going on in the world and how should they, what kind of decisions should they make for their families?
1: Give some examples. I of think, that.
0: well, the best example of this might be the, the pandemic that we are all just coming out of. I mean, when we do, in fact, look at the numbers, and again, I, I completely concur that 30 million, you know, odd people listening to public radio is important, but we did see The numbers go up dramatically between 2015 and 2016 in terms of listenership. You got that Trump bump where everyone was looking for news media. But we also saw those numbers start to decline. And it wasn't yesterday, you know, after the pandemic, quote unquote, ended. It was 2017, 2018. Like, what was happening there? The decline was dramatic and it continued. Worse yet, during the pandemic, listenership declined further. Are you, At a ti- about,
1: are you talking about public radio for or public, all public media? Radio broadly, for
0: public radio not broadly. Not all media. Right, not all okay. media. Mm-hmm. Um, this is based on a, a Pew poll. Um, and the question one has to ask themselves is how, during a time when people are distressingly concerned about the future, they're worried about this pernicious pandemic, they're worried about a, a presidential election cycle that's coming up, they're worried about... Um, uh, uh, An economic turmoil, and they're worried about civil unrest that is unfolding across the country, paroxysms of violence, even if we're informed that it's mostly peaceful. That was happening, and people weren't tuning in. That is a red flashing light that suggests that something is desperately wrong. Next on the docket, a query about air and the
1: sea, a heated debate, and both sides disagreed. We traveled to Richmond to a massive stage. There we debated, can humans adapt to climate change? I wanna go to the side arguing first in support of the motion and go to you, Matthew uh, uh, Kahn. When you said we are not passive and you believe that humans are capable of being active and smart about adaptation and doing that well, why is that not also just as true of mitigation? So the difference
7: between adaptation and mitigation is a free rider issue. The United States right now has not passed a carbon tax. I don't know if it would pass in the room. So a distinction needs to be made. To mitigate carbon, the world... Can,
1: can, you, can, can you, just for people who are not familiar with the concept of carbon tax, take 15 seconds on that. Higher gas taxes. How many folks vote in favor of that? So I can't... Well, so.
7: Uh-oh. So, uh, so to mit- it, mitigation would be for the whole world to agree to raise the price of gasoline by two bucks a gallon. That would be a carbon tax. That would accelerate the electric vehicle push. Folks, the world has not enacted Greta Thunberg's agenda. I have worked for 25 years now on climate change adaptation because I'm so worried that the world has not solved the free rider issue that everyone hopes that everyone else will mitigate. In contrast with adaptation to protect our families, to protect our loved ones, we have Incentives to be proactive in seeking solutions to heat, fire risk, flood risk, for any of the plagues that can be named by climate scientists, we have strong incentives to seek solutions and that creates a market incentive, the invisible hand focused on adaptation.
1: Michelle Walker, so what I think I'm hearing is different interpretations of, of human nature where your opponent, Matthew, is saying that mitigation is just not something people want to buy into, would be good at, would participate in. And your argument goes very much in the other direction about what human nature is about. So why don't you take that on?
8: Yeah, well, as far as adaptation, we know that the, the sea levels are rising, that, that places like Miami are in danger. We know that there are more wildfires, California in danger. What if we had more and more and more people moving to the coastal areas and to areas that are vulnerable to wildfires that to me doesn 't sound like really proactive adaptation, maybe, maybe I got that wrong and you know as far as the, the carbon tax or not, well you know, taxpayers are paying for fossil fuels right now, not once but twice we 're paying with the subsidies seven percent of GDP a year, according to the International Monetary Fund, when it would cost perhaps 1% to 2% of GDP a year to mitigate greenhouse gases. So, you know, are we talking about a couple cents at the the gas station? Or are we talking about billions and billions of dollars every year that taxpayers are spending? So, So fossil fuels aren't cheap. We only think they're cheap because we don't see how we're paying for them.
1: Finally, we headed north to New York City, where movies and shakers gathered by committee. Thousands of CEOs from 80 countries attended which seems like a good way to end this year that has ended. The question might require some thinking rewired. Quite simply, we asked, has globalisation backfired?
9: Hi, um, I'm Ben. I'm from Australia. Um, but my question is really, how do we, um, you know, the discussion has globalisation backfired is about poverty, Uh, from the 1950s until now, uh, global poverty's been reduced substantially and has increased, um, well, it's slowing down more recently. Is that because of globalization or some other factor?
10: Yeah. Uh, listen, that's a great question. Um, and yeah, I would, have to say, I would have to say yes, because it goes back, most of the poverty that you're talking about was alleviated in emerging markets, but particularly in Asia and particularly in China. So it goes back to this point, UNCTAD research showing that the biggest single beneficiaries were the multinational corporations and the Chinese state. So yes, you now have um, a number of people that are not living at the poverty line, but the question of the debate is has globalization backfired? And I would argue that the outsized increase in in in-country inequality has created so much economic trouble in various nation-states that yes, the decoupling and the political fractiousness that we're seeing now is evidence that it's backfired.
9: It's certainly true, uh, what Rana pointed out factually. Yes, of course, globalization is, is a, had a very, very strong role in poverty reduction around the world, particularly in Asia. And now, though, domestic economic growth, the consumer economy, digitization, financialization, urbanization in those countries has also picked up the torch. Now again, those countries are so connected to international supply chains. Look at India, look at Indonesia, Vietnam, these places from which American companies are now relocating supply chains. Remember that just because they decide to no longer, and if they don't invest in China anymore... They're just relocating that supply chain activity to Vietnam or other Asian countries. That's very much still globalization. So there is still cheap labor out there. And even if the labor were not cheap, you still want to sell into those fast-growing consumer markets. The majority of the world population, the majority of the world's middle class is shifting towards Asia on the other side of the world from us. If those multinational corporations have any hope of maintaining their market cap, they're going to want to continue to export. Now, again... The backlash against the mismanagement of globalization in our by our politicians is very welcome. But once that process is complete of uh, voting out governments that have failed and passing new regulations that are more equitable and pushing for inclusive capitalism, once that process is complete, guess what? We will be back to where we've been all along, which is embracing globalization and comparative advantage.
10: One quick stat, 92% of multinational companies, according to McKinsey Global Institute, are regionalizing and localizing production for all kinds of reasons. Here's
1: another question. Can you tell us your name, please?
5: Hi there, Charlie Rose uh, from YPO Pasadena. Uh, Many would argue that the defining challenge of this era is climate change, which is a uniquely global issue. I have a two-part question for you. How has uh, can, globalization... Can, can I ask you,
1: just in the interest of everybody else, to choose one?
5: Uh, yes. Thanks. Uh, so my question is, uh, how has globalization impacted the trajectory of climate change? And the question I choose is, how will the fight to... You're, doing,
1: you're slipping in a second one. So I'm going to take the first one.
10: I'm sorry. So the you... question is, how okay.
1: has globalization impacted the issue of climate change?
10: Love that question, and I would take it in two pieces. A lot of times people ask this question and they say, well, how can we possibly get a solution to climate change unless the conversation is happening at a global level? And of course, it has to happen at a global level, but the solutions will be highly localized. And let me give you a couple of reasons for that. Um, The US, Europe, and China, Asia, all are approaching this issue in different ways and by different means. Ultimately, fixing climate change is going to mean hyper-localized supply chains. Does anybody know what the single most polluting thing in really any large country is in terms of an industry? It's, it's not the fossil fuel industry itself. It's supply chains going into complex industries like housing, for example. There are seven separate supply chains that go into building a house. Materials are being toted from all over the world, that has an emissions cost. This is something, contrary to what Parag was saying, that is now actually becoming a revolution in manufacturing. Additive manufacturing, which is basically making parts and making entire cars, or in the case of houses, homes now, being done all over the the world. It's done in Austin, Texas, California, India. You can do things locally. The technology is there, and that is what is going to stop a large part of climate change. Likewise, localization of things like um, food, food production. The number one cash crop in this, uh, in terms of produce in this country, is iceberg lettuce. Why? Because you can tote it for six months in a car, and it, you know, it, it, it'll still be good. Does anybody really want to eat light iceberg lettuce? No. That's why there are now vertical farms that are being developed, that are growing produce up the side of, uh, of buildings and on roofs. That kind of hyper-localization is going to be a really important part of fixing the emissions problem okay. that is at the core of climate change.
9: I want to give Prague a shot at the same time. Rana question. has walked into two of my favorite traps. <laughs> okay, the first is the point that I feel like made. I want to tell you to
1: choose one also. Right? Okay.
9: Well... The thing about most, you know, Western or American multinationals saying they're going to regionalize, part of the reason is because by manufacturing in Mexico, you can then more easily export to preferential markets that Mexico has freer trade agreements with in Asia than the United States does. And why is China expanding its manufacturing presence in Mexico as well is in order to access the United States more readily through the USMCA trade agreement. So again, all of the trade liberalization that continues to go on on in the spirit of the globalization definition that we are using is alive and well, and American firms and Chinese firms and all firms continue to uh, exploit it. So globalization, again, thriving. Now, on the climate change question, this is the, the real trap, is this idea that we are uh, engaging in this hyper-localization process and everything is domestically produced and consumed and nothing comes from anywhere else anymore. Well, I want to ask you something. That um, 3D printer... Right? that beautiful device that sits on our countertop and is meant to make anything we want, any solid or liquid object and print it out for us, and somehow there's no uh, international supply chain d- that that, uh, that depends on. Well, I want to ask you where that was built. Where did you get that 3D printer that is making your stuff for you? Oh, yeah, you imported it from Korea. I think globalization is doing okay. How about that vertical farm, right? All did, made
10: it, The ones the I'm seeds. talking about were all made locally, but many of them are yeah. made locally.
1: Okay, that's it for us. Thanks for listening to our holiday rhyme. Now go and enjoy this holiday time. Happy holidays. I'm John Donvan. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared, made possible by a generous grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund as a nonprofit. Our work to combat extreme polarization through civil and respectful debate is generously funded by listeners like you, the Rosencrantz Foundation, and Friends of Intelligence Squared. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Clea Connor is CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Julia Melfi, Shea O'Mara, and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. We'll see you next time.